Our Father in heaven, we're grateful to be here in this place. Lord, I pray that you'd speak to us through your word and encourage us and start this conference in the way in which you mean for it to go on. So we thank you tonight. We believe that you are the great educator. We believe that your word is the greatest textbook. I thank you for the people here tonight who have given themselves to the education of our young people for your glory and with eternity in view. We thank you and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. In Wiltshire, that's a county in England, 11 miles from the city of Salisbury with its beautiful cathedral, its spire reaching 404 feet up into the sky, the highest cathedral spire in all of the United Kingdom. About 90 miles from London, it's a fascinating place. You'd actually say it was in Amesbury, which is a little town of about 11,000 people. No one knows what this fascinating place really is. Read the literature and you'll find words like thought to be, might have been, researchers have considered. But truth be told, nobody really knows. It's thousands of years old, that much is known. Older than the pyramids in Egypt. It's made out of enormous stones, some of them 30 or so feet high, some of them weighing 25 tons. People were buried there apparently at one stage, so there's that, but it appears to about everybody who looks on that this place is more than just a graveyard. The origin of the big stones is a bit of a mystery. Some of them were evidently sourced locally or localishly. Others, the smaller ones, but still very big, it's believed that they came from Wales, which is about 180 miles away. So the question is, how in the world did they go to this great big stones 180 miles from Wales down to here? I visited Stonehenge a couple of times. I'm fascinated by it. It's oddly beautiful. It's very stark. Of course, the bucolic setting is delightful. First time I was there was almost 30 years ago, and I'm shocked to be able to say that, but last time I was there was last year. We were there very briefly. We stood in the fields around Stonehenge and we looked and we photographed and we stood and we wondered and we, and we said to each other, what's the point? What's it for? What's really the object of this place? And in truth, no one's really 100% sure. Now there's another little interesting place in England. Another part of England, Stonehenge is in the southwest. This is in the southeast. Just outside the seaside town of Margate, just 50 miles in a straight line from Dunkirk on the coast of France. In the year 1835, a man digging in a field was astonished when he pressed his shovel into the ground and the shovel disappeared. Oh my goodness, what's going on, he thought. He ran and he told another man. The other man came looking and he said, hmm, my son will help. So they tied a rope around the son and lowered him down, candle in hand, into this hole in the ground. And when he came up out of the ground, he came up with the most amazing tale. 
When they checked out the boy's story, they discovered that beneath their feet was something that resembled a temple, and it was adorned with seashells lining the walls, 4.6 million seashells. They got the locals to look down there. What in the world? Passageways, rooms, an altar, a rotunda. The shells are arranged in some fascinating patterns, some beautiful patterns. They're arranged in objects. It's quite interesting. People looked at this. They started to ask around. This was 1835. There was no one in town who could say, ah, I remember a story about that. My grandfather used to tell me. That means if in 1835, nobody's grandfather knew about it, this thing was old. They wondered, was it a place created by pirates where they were going to hide their loot? Well, no, it didn't make any sense at all. Too far from the beach, no escape passage, very elaborate. And what about the shells? And why doesn't anybody know about a team? It was obviously a large team of people who did all of that digging and gathered 4.6 million seashells. And they're all local shells. They're not strange exotic shells that were taken there from Florida or the Bahamas or some such place. What in the world? Well, somebody thought maybe it was a Roman temple. Maybe, possible, but probably not. The current theory is that this was perhaps built in the 1100s by a group known as the Poor Fellow Soldiers of Christ and the Temple of Solomon. You know them better as the Knights Templar, a Roman Catholic organization, a military order founded in the 12th century. So now they wonder if it was a Knights Templar temple. It's a privately owned place. If you were ever in Margate or near Margate, not that far from the White Cliffs of Dover, you might, you might want to go and take a look at the Margate Shell Grotto in Kent. But if you were to visit the Margate Shell Grotto, you would come away from there saying to yourself, what in the world? What's the purpose of Stonehenge? Doesn't seem to be anybody who knows. What's the purpose, or what was the purpose, of the Margate Shell Grotto? Same thing. But at the end of the day, it hardly matters. Stonehenge is just a pile of rocks. The Margate Shell Grotto is just a bunch of seashells. Probably doesn't matter. But let's ask ourselves a question that really does matter. What's the purpose for our schools? Let me give you the perspective of a, of a parent with a child attending high school right now. As a matter of fact, attending one of the high schools represented here at this conference this week. There are a number of things my wife Melissa and I wish for our children. We wish for them good health. We wish for them good friends and worthy associates. We wish for them bright futures, good careers. We wish for them to be involved in mission work, in serving others. We wish for them to one day find a spouse, God willing, who would be just the person God wants for them. But above all, 
way above all these other considerations. We want our children to know and love God. That's what we want. That's it. If they are sick and lonely and unemployed and can't figure out their purpose in their life, that's okay with me if they know and love God because then they have everything. We are given our children for a pitifully short time on this earth. They leave our homes way too quickly. What we want is for our children to be saved. We want them to be in heaven. We love our children, but not nearly as much as God loves our children. God wants for our children to be in heaven too. And so when he gives them to us with those children, he gives to parents and educators as well the responsibility of preparing them for everlasting life. That's what God does. A major part of this whole equation is school. If you figure that a kid spends seven hours a day at school, that's a conservative estimate that doesn't count any time before, doesn't count any time after. It's not talking about extracurricular activities. Seven hours a day, five days a week, that's 35 hours a week. Add extracurricular activities, it could be up to the sky's the limit. How much time does that child spend at home? Waking hours, interacting with his or her family members. Uh, an hour or so in the morning? Once they get home from school, I don't know, call it three o'clock, six hours. If you do the math, it's about even Stevens. Once you add extracurricular activities, there's a strong case to make. In fact, in many situations, a child spends more time at school than he or she does at home. It isn't out of the question that my child will spend more time at school with classmates and friends and teachers than he or she will spend with me, no matter how available I am as a parent. If a child is away at boarding school, as is one of mine, then of course those numbers are, are skewed dramatically and, and, and my influence now on that child's life is really pretty small. I've been told by many parents, my children left home for academy at 14, 15 years of age, and basically never came back. That is terrifying. We want the best for our children. When I say we, I mean all parents. We want our children to be happy on this earth. We want them to be productive. And we want them in heaven. That's what we want. Which means that what we want, what we need, is schools that are as committed to that objective as parents are. A school must be a place that increases a child's chances of going to heaven. Must be. If it isn't, it should close. Now, of course, there are some things that are more or less out of the control of any, in any school. You can only do so much to police the activities of kids. You can't always tell what kind of kids you're going to attract to school, therefore what kind of crowd you're going to get. You cannot dictate very easily what sort of decisions these children will make. But the first priority of any school must be to do everything possible to get a child to heaven. My friend told me just the other day, the first time my son ever drank alcohol 
was when he went to school. That was a church-run high school. I'm not faulting the school for that. You know how kids can be. That's just how it was. That young man went on to develop dependence issues. He's been out of high school for probably more than 15 years now. And his life is still somewhere close to rock bottom. Yet where did he learn his bad habits? You can understand how disappointed my friend is that that's how things played out. I was sitting down to eat at the fellowship meal after church one Sabbath and a friend's son sat opposite me and I knew that he went to a church school and I knew that we were looking for a school to send my son to. And so I said to him, hey man, I'm glad you're sitting there. Let's talk. I want to ask you about your school. I said, we're fixing to send our son off to school and I want to ask you some questions. And he looked up at me and deadpan, he said, don't send him to my school. I said, why would you say such a thing? He said, well, to begin with, we had four pregnancies last year. Now again, hear me carefully, we can't hold the school responsible for this. One friend would tell his children when they went off to college, a dear friend of mine, he would say to his kids, you will find what you are looking for. And that's a fair comment. But the fact is, you don't need your kids to go off looking for sin. Sin comes looking for them. It's a jungle out there. I am glad I don't have to be a kid today. Now our kids deal with streaming video and smartphones. It is no secret that on many of our high school campuses, there is an acknowledged problem with pornography. What this means is we are facing a crisis. I'll say it again. We are facing a crisis. I'm not given to hyperbole. That's what it is. An utter, absolute crisis. So why is this? We know why it is. Revelation 12 and verse 17 tells us why it is. It says, The dragon was wroth with the woman and went to make war with the remnant of her seed, which keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. We are in a war. The war is called the great controversy. And when it comes to our children, when it comes to education, that which will save us in the great controversy is something Ellen White called the great object. I don't expect this to be new to you. I shall read this to you. Through sin, the divine likeness was marred and well nigh obliterated. Man's physical powers were weakened. His mental capacity was lessened. His spiritual vision dimmed. He had become subject to death. Yet the race was not left without hope. By infinite love and mercy, the plan of salvation had been devised and a life of probation was granted. Now, to restore in man the image of his maker, to bring him back to the perfection in which he was created, to promote the development of body, mind, and soul, that the divine purpose in his creation might be realized. This was to be the work of redemption. This is the object of education, the great object of life. That's the book Education and page 15. Now you noticed that, didn't you? The object of education. What's it for? Why do we have schools? Why are we educating our children at all? I was raised near a large city in which, or on the outskirts of which, it was a very large high school operated by the Mormons. 
And we, we knew that school because when it came to sport, those guys were excellent. When it came to being citizens, they were model citizens, good people. But some years ago, the church said, we no longer need that school because the schools in this city are so good that we don't need to provide our own school. Now, I think what that really means is this is costing us a boatload of money and we just figure we don't want to pay it anymore. That's what I think. But what they said was, there are so many very good schools in the area, why do we need a school of our own? It's a fair question. That's a really good question. And unless you have a really particular, peculiar mission, why in the world would you go to the trouble and the expense of having your own schools? These things aren't cheap. Our universities will never have law schools like Harvard or Stanford, won't. We will never have medical schools of the caliber of Johns Hopkins or UNC or Duke. We won't. We will never have academies that can outsmart these high-end private schools. We won't. We will never have schools that are as well-equipped as most public schools. Public schools. We won't. But that's not why we operate schools or educate our children. We don't have schools so that primarily our kids can get an excellent education academically. I'm going to say that again in case you misheard me. The primary reason for having schools is not to ensure that our kids are exposed to excellent academics. It's not the primary reason. I want my kids exposed to excellent academics. I want that. That's not the primary reason for our schools. We don't have schools because our primary consideration is for setting our children up in great careers. At least I hope we don't. If that's our primary purpose, let's close our schools and send them to public schools because they do a pretty good job of that. That's not the primary reason. We don't primarily set up our schools to provide our, our kids with uh, opportunities of service and ministry. That's not the primary reason. God forbid that's the primary reason. It may be a secondary reason or a tertiary reason. It cannot be the primary reason, for goodness sake. We operate schools, we educate our children because the great object of education is to restore in our children the image of God. The great object of education is the same as the work of redemption, which means that our schools exist for redemption. No one's looking for a perfect school. Perfect school doesn't exist. We've probably tried over, over the years to create a few perfect schools, but the perfect school doesn't exist. Not perfect. We're not looking for a perfect school. What we want, what we need, what we must have are schools that are bending their every energy to connect the hearts of our children with the heart of Almighty God. That's what we must have. Here's what we know. We know that tons of kids leave the church. Tons of them. If that isn't bad enough, we know that tons of our kids leave Christ. If we're going to place responsibility anywhere, the lion's share of the responsibility for that statistic or that generalization 
ought to be placed at the feet of the family, which right now, generally speaking, is a mess. But what's the role of the school in all of this? What's the role of the Christian school? We know to work to restore in man the image of his maker, to bring him back to the perfection in which he was created, that the divine purpose in his or her creation might be realized. The servant of the Lord equates the work of redemption with the work of education. I am looking for schools that will say to parents, we are going to do everything we can to see to it that your child knows God and is saved. No, I'm not asking for a school to be a miracle worker or to give me a guarantee, but parents everywhere are looking for that school who will say to parents of prospective students, we're going to do our best in this and this and this, and we'll try to educate your kid, and we'll give them fun experiences, we'll provide a safe haven, but we want you to know our primary objective here is to see that your kid knows Jesus, to see that your child is saved. That's what we want. It's what we need. And it's the object of true education. It's what it is. We have it straight from the pen of inspiration. If that is not the prime focus of a school, it would be best to shut the school. Here's what I can't figure out. I may well be editorializing here. If I am, then I just can't help myself. Knowing that by the time our kids get to 17, 18 years of age, 21, 22 years of age, there is an enormous likelihood that they'll leave the church. Knowing that, knowing that life is hard on the faith of a child, knowing that, why do we not, as a church, have an overarching 12-year or 16-year plan for the Christianizing, yea, verily, the adventizing of our children. Is there an overarching plan, a well-thought-out, well-researched plan, year one, year two, year three, year four, year five, year six, by the time you left, educated. We can't turn them into Christians my goodness, if we educate them, we give them the tools they need. If someone says to me, we already have that long-range plan for our, to make Adventists out of our kids, I'm here to tell you that, generally speaking, that plan has failed. The fact of the matter is we are in a war. We are caught in a crisis of existence, and we are fighting for the survival of our kids. The devil is at the top of his game. The top. Ellen White said in the sixth volume of the Testimonies, page 127, Satan has used the most ingenious methods to weave his plans and principles into the systems of education and thus gain a strong hold on the minds of the children and youth. It is the work of the true educator. Now that's small t, small e. She's not talking about Jesus. It is the work of the true educator to thwart his devices. Now, she does not say what these most ingenious methods are. But this is 2018, and you should not find it too difficult to identify some of them. She says this on the same page. Most earnest attention must be given to the education which will impart a knowledge of salvation 
and will conform the life and character to the divine similitude. I'll read it again. Most earnest attention must be given to the education which will impart a knowledge of salvation and will conform the life and character to the divine similitude. That's what's important. I'll just say this. This is a parenthetical statement. You know where I think we're failing? We dedicate babies without teaching parents what it means to be parents. When I go back to pastoral work, and I will by the grace of God, when someone says, Pastor, I want you to dedicate the baby, I say, first, we're going to dedicate you. And we're going to go through some lessons together what it means to be a parent of a Christian child. No, find someone else to dedicate your baby. We do that with marriage, right? That's we have preparation for marriage classes in, in many cases. And I wonder, I'm just throwing this out there, I wonder if there's not a place for schools to educate parents as well as students. Is there a place for the school to call the parents in and say, we want, we want to talk to you. And we want to see to it that you at home, we want to encourage you at home to be following the principles that we're teaching your child here in school. I mean, what hope do you have, right? If the child goes home and is taught by the family to be a devil and then come to school and they expect you to work miracles and turn that child into an angel, which is so often the case. Wouldn't it be wonderful if we had a shot at the parents and we said to them, hey, we want you to be on board with this program as well. This is a program for the whole family. I'd love to see somebody try it. If we educate experts in media so that Hollywood can chew them up and spit them out, then we have harmed the kingdom of God. If we are educating doctors who don't know the great physician and lawyers who do not know the lawgiver, we are dishonoring God. Now, again, I'm going to say this in case anybody here has a selective memory. The one thing we cannot do is force the choice of a child. There's no guarantee here. There is no magic bullet. But there is something better than a guarantee in the lives of our children. And that's the Word of God. Even though there's no magic formula that will take every child and turn him or her into a saint of God, we need to work for our kids as though there is one that exists. Here's what we read in Matthew chapter 7, starting in verse 24. Therefore, whoever hears these sayings of mine and does them, I will liken him to a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain descended, the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, and it did not fall, for it was founded on the rock. But everyone who hears these sayings of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain descended, the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, and it fell. And great was its fall. Jesus is very clear here. He identifies the rock not as himself, although it's okay for you to say that. But he says the rock here is what he calls these sayings of mine. I'm not, I'm not trying to separate Jesus from his teachings. I'm just, I guess I'm being pedantic. Jesus does not say that the rain will not descend. In both instances, wise man and foolish man, there was plenty of precipitation. He does not say that the floods won't come. In both instances, the creeks surely rose. He does not say 
the winds won't blow. For both the wise and the foolish man, the winds were gale force. Jesus does not say that the house would not come under pressure. In both cases, the house in question was shaken. But one house stood, and that is the house of the man who received an excellent education. The house of the man who was a straight-A student. The house of the man who won a scholarship all the way through academy and all the way through college. Doesn't say that at all. One house stood, and as good as those other things are, it was the house of the one who built that house on the rock. And what is that rock? These sayings of mine. Jesus is speaking about salvation. He's talking about the troubles of life. He's talking about the challenges that present themselves to a person. He's speaking about the lot of every one of us and all of our kids. And somebody's house stood. It did not fall. What house was that? The one that was built on the word of God. And what sayings were those? Specifically, Jesus is speaking of the Sermon on the Mount. But of course, he is speaking about the word of God in general. As Mrs. White said in 6131, what education can be given to the students of our schools that is so necessary as a knowledge of what saith the scriptures? Bible study is especially needed in schools, she wrote. Students should be rooted and founded in divine truth. Their attention should be called not to the assertions of men, but to the Word of God. Above all other books, the Word of God must be our study, the great textbook, the basis of all education. And our children are to be educated in the truths found therein, irrespective of previous customs. How simple is that? Connect children to the Word of God. That's more than just, that's more than just reading a Bible story. That's more than just having prayer before class. I really believe that successful schools go beyond the school. I've mentioned that. If families would put as much into raising their kids as we want schools to put into raising our kids, we might turn a corner. But Jesus said something. He said, these sayings of mine. Now, there's a danger that we can fall into when we consider this. And I suspect it has been fallen into many times before. Over on one side is the, the scylla of liberalism. Anything goes. Lower the standard. That's the school where the teacher goes into town and tells all the kids, I'm going into town. I shall go to Starbucks for you. What do you want me to bring back? That's the school where, where, the word of God, where you don't want to go overboard with the Word of God, where you don't want to preach about the second coming because you don't want the children to be worried, when you think teaching prophecy is old hat, where you wouldn't encourage your kids to go to an evangelistic series because that's what they used to do in the dark ages where you don't wheel out the Conflict of the Ages series and quote Ellen White because that's old hat, that's old-fashioned, that's legalistic today. That's one thing. That's, that, that, that's the scylla of liberalism that you want to avoid, and we should. But on the other side is the Charybdis of legalism, where we think that because we get outward compliance that we've actually achieved something. That, friend, is a deception. And we need to be careful of it. Let's take an easy standard. Let's say television. So we tell our kids, you don't watch television. In our schools, that's easy. You just don't have a television. And you tell them not to watch it. 
You tell them the Bible is against some of what's on TV. And we tell them Ellen White is against some of what's on TV. I'm just using a very simple example. You can put your own in there. If we are not careful, we are going to educate the next generation of legalists. But it's really easy to ask our kids to comply. And when they do, we think we've done our job because we see outward compliance. And you can pride yourself that all the skirts are the right length. You can have them eat the right food. And when it's possible that all you've got are legalists who've learned how to say the right thing and do the right thing, but their hearts have not been changed. What I'm saying is, you look at them from the outside and you say, we're so proud of this institution. We can't be more concerned about the outside of our kids than we are about what's going on on the inside. For if we get them on the inside, God will take care of them on the outside. If we get the heart, God has them all. I want to tell you this, while we talk about true education, and I speak in general terms because this garment will fit you in a different way than it will fit another. We've got to be careful that we're not just breeding legalists. And we don't have to. You know, don't you, that Ellen White said that the message of the third angel is the message of justification by faith of knowing Jesus so profoundly and so completely that you receive his righteousness. He increases, you decrease. Christ's will is done in your life. Now, there's an art to that. There's a science to that. It may be an exact science. You may call it an inexact science. But if all we develop are rule keepers, We've failed. I realized some years ago that parenthood boiled down to a pretty simple premise. When the kids were two years old, here's what we did. We said, you're wearing these shoes. They said, okay. And you're wearing this sweater. And they said, okay. And you're eating this. And they said, okay. You can tell them, we are going to see grandma. And they would say, great. We're going to the park. And they would say, wonderful. We're going shopping. Fantastic. They were two years old. You told them what to do, and they did it. By the time they got to about eight, nine, or ten, the practice was essentially the same, but it held the reins a little less tight. And when they become teenagers, and they're in mid and late teens, the practice is altogether different. Our job as parents is plainly and simply to prepare our children for the time in their lives when they make their own decisions. So what does a kid need in order to make a good decision? What a child needs is Jesus. Jesus. I don't say that flippantly. I mean that really. 
the person of Jesus, a respect for the Word of God, a life that's based on the Word of God, a heart that responds to the appeals of the Word of God, a mind that says what God believes matters. And if a child is going to spend seven plus hours a day at school or maybe 24 hours a day at school, our schools must be schools that reinforce those values. We want our kids to comply. We want to insist they don't watch this, don't eat that, don't wear that. Understand in the home and at school, there are different dynamics. But if if the hearts of our kids aren't connected to Christ, we come back to the question that we asked about Stonehenge and that underground cavern in England. What's the object of it all? We don't want only assenters, conformers. We want Christians, boys and girls who love God. What's education about? At the end of the day, it's teaching our young people to build their house on a rock. And notice, in the story Jesus told, it was the man's house, not his garage, not his gym, his house, his life. His kitchen was there, it was in the house. His bedroom was there, it was in the house. The living room was there, that's in the house. His computer was there, because that's in the house. His pantry was there. It was his house, his life. Jesus is talking about character building. And that's the work of education. He says it was built on these sayings of mine. If we'll work together to connect our kids to Jesus, if schools exist for the primary purpose of bringing our children to the foot of the cross and to loving and seeing the character of God and wanting that for themselves, then we'll see a work in our church and in the world that we've never seen before. What does it take? Families that are committed. It takes teachers that are converted. And it takes people of faith to believe God's way is the right way, the only way forward for our schools and for our church. Jesus said in John 6 and verse 63, it is the spirit that quickeneth, the flesh profiteth nothing. The words that I speak unto you, they are spirit and they are life. What are we sharing? We're sharing Jesus. If we preach, it's Jesus. If we teach, it's Jesus. If we can connect our kids to Christ, we've done what God has asked us to do. We can't force their choice. We can't make them what they won't allow themselves to be made. But I tell you what, there is power in the word of God power in the Word of God. And if it forms the basis of what you do where you are and of your appeal to the children under your jurisdiction, then we're going to see powerful things. I want to encourage you in the walk that you're on. I want to thank you for what you're doing, but I firmly believe there is still a work to do and our greatest days are ahead. I believe that. I believe that Jesus is coming back soon and before he returns, the latter rain will be poured out. That makes the latter rain very soon if the coming of Jesus is soon. We're about to see great, great, great things. A man we must respect, a man named Percy McGann, was made an offer one day. It was an offer from W.K. Kellogg. And uh, Sutherland and McGann would go on to found the Madison School. McGann was offered a sum of money by Will Keith Kellogg. John Harvey Kellogg invented cornflakes, and Will Keith Kellogg invented turning cornflakes into money. 
And W.K. Kellogg said to him again, I need you to work with, for me. I want you to work for me. And he offered him a large sum of money. Now, I, I did some math. I looked at what dollars were then compared with what dollars are now. McGann told, I believe it was, it was A.G. Daniels. McGann told Daniels about this and he wrote to him and he said, I could have taken that money and pretty easily turned it into a larger sum. And so I converted that larger sum into today's money and it was around $25 million. So McGann was offered a sum of money, a large sum of money that he believed he could easily turn into $25 million in today's money. Do you think he was tempted? Of course he was tempted. Who wouldn't be interested in money like that? But he said, I need to talk to God about this. And he went and he prayed all night. He talked about praying all night under a maple tree or an oak tree, I forget which. He said in the morning, he came to the conclusion that God wanted him to make Adventists, not cornflakes. What does God want us to make? Adventists, last day Christians, ready to be translated. God wants us to pour everything we've got into preparing young people to be numbered among the 144,000. Not an impossible task. He's coming back soon for those who receive not the mark of the beast, but the seal of God. These are, these are children who go to school where you are right now. These are children who sit at your feet, who listen to your lessons. Why are they in your classrooms? Why are they in your schools? Why are they sleeping in dormitories? Because this is part of God's plan to connect those kids with Jesus so that one day they can stand on the circle of the earth looking up and saying, lo, this is our God. We have waited for him and he will save us. God bless you for what you're doing. Thank you for what you're doing. God works with you in what you're doing. I pray that this conference will be a resounding success and will leave you inspired and encouraged to go forth and do great things for God. And when Jesus comes back and you are looking up, I pray that God will give you the joy of looking around you and saying, these are the kids I educated. These are the children who were with me in school. Won't it be worth it then? It'll be worth it then, won't it? Let's pray for that day to come. Pray with me now. Father in heaven, we thank you that the great object of education, we know what it is. It's to see your image reformed in the lives of boys and girls and young men and women. It's the work of redemption. I pray that over these next few days, every person here in this place, we so encouraged and inspired, we'll see uh, perhaps things not ever seen before, we'll be encouraged in great ways. Jesus must come back soon, we know that. And Lord, we must be ready and our children must be prepared to, to live a life connected with Jesus and a life of sharing Jesus with others. So we're grateful tonight for the principles that you've given to us as a people. We pray for the power in your word and we pray for our young people that they would experience that power and know Jesus like they've never known him before. Bless us, we pray, and might the great object of education be realized in our institutions and in the lives of our young people. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.